If you would, please turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 32. We got back into Job last week, and that's where we are now, moving right along, but thankful for it. Job has proven to be a book that is so good for the church, good for believers and followers of Christ. Job is a book about suffering, and Job is a book about the big sovereign strength of God. God is a sovereign God with all authority and all power, and life is filled with trials and adversity and suffering. When you try to put those two things together, it is challenging and difficult, and oftentimes it just leads to more questions. Until we find that the Bible shows us that the climax or peak or pinnacle and the purpose of all of it is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, where the creator God became a man and suffered and died for us. All of the big points of doctrine, all of the large questions of life find their understanding and their answers in Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that he's the Son of God and that he came to us and took on flesh and he never sinned, he lived the perfect life, but then he died. With all of us going, he shouldn't have died. He didn't deserve to die. They're wrong for killing him. But understanding that he died for all of the wrong in the world, he died for our sins, He died to redeem us, to bring us back to God. Then and truly only then do we start to get some answers to the suffering that this life brings. Job is all about that. Job is suffering. And Job is a big book of 42 chapters, and it's long. And we've said it many times over the weeks that if we stay here too long, it seems like we're going to get bored or it's too redundant. But what we're seeing as we study this week after week is that there is a lot to examine here under the the category of friendship. Now, you don't often hear people speak of the book of Job as a book on Christian friendship. But in many ways, that's what it's becoming for us. A book on friendship. A book on what it means to not only be a friend or have a friend, but rather to understand God and his ways in the midst of friendship. Job is teaching us this. I want you to look with me at Job chapter 32. And today we're going to cover verses, uh, ch- uh, chapters 32 through 37. And what you will notice here is that there is now a new friend that comes into the picture, Elihu, E-L-I-H-U. And that's a Hebrew name, so we don't necessarily know how to pronounce it perfectly in English. Elihu, all right? And we know that Job has already been wrestling three different cycles with three other friends, going all the way back to chapter three, all the way to chapter 31, all of those chapters were Job and these, th- these friends going back and forth. But they're finished, and that's what I preached on last week, and now today we get to this new friend, Elihu. Now this is interesting. 
because it's a turn in the book of Job. We saw last week that it didn't end so well. Job is frustrated, his friends are frustrated, and they are no closer to hoping and trusting in God. But when it turns here, it just becomes even more interesting. D.A. Carson has said that these chapters here, 32 to 37 with Elihu, are the most interesting and most difficult chapters in the book of Job, and that's what we will study today. Mason writes, next to Job himself, Elihu is by far the most interesting, complex, and fully realized character in this book. That's what we're studying today. But when we try to bring in the big ideas of God, his sovereignty, our suffering, God's value and worth, uh, satisfaction in this life, and we try to bring that into the idea of friendship, we have to be careful because we are all really bad at finding friendships that connect or bond over common interests that often do not have God in them or do not have God at the center of them. And what we need to learn from the book of Job here this morning is that that is dangerous. For me or you to have relationships on any level that do not see the glory of God as the purpose of them can become dangerous. You need to know that. Francis Chan has said, our greatest fear in life should not be of failure, but at succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. You've heard that before, I think. Our greatest fear in life should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And this is the idea that we want to bring into Job today with friendship and the worth of God and the lordship of Christ. I'm at a stage with my kids where they're into certain interests. And every single time they talk to me, they bring up certain subjects, whether it be Legos or whether it be Star Wars or whether it be video games or whether it be a a TV show or something like that. It's like they don't want to talk to me unless we're talking about that. And sometimes friendships get that way, don't they? And I've been thinking about that. Because I find myself thinking, man, they sure want to talk about that all the time, but I want to talk about this all the time. And it brings a level of complexity to a relationship, doesn't it? When you start asking yourself, is this all we're going to talk about? Or do we ever talk about this? Do we ever talk about our issues or our strengths or our problems? Or most importantly, do we ever talk about Jesus and truth? Well, the turn that we take in the book of Job today is that this friend, this new character in the story, Elihu, talks about God a lot. And in many ways, he is exemplary. Look with me, if you will, at Job chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous 
in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Here's the introduction to our guy, Elihu. His name means he is my God. Uh, there where it says he is the son of Barakal, the Buzite, we have in, in the book of Genesis that uh, the Buzites were the children of Abraham, one of the descendants of Abraham. So this lets us know that this guy was a Jew related to the people of Abraham. We don't have that on the other three friends. We don't hear much about them at all, but we do have this here. Perhaps this is telling us that he should know more about God. But we have this guy coming later. And it's going to be a joy to study. I want to remind you of what we talked about on friendship in the past couple sermons. In the beginning of Job, when, the, when Job is suffering and, and he falls into this terrible situation, these friends show up. And at that sermon, I told you all, five characteristics of good friends are this. They came, they connected, they comforted, they cried, and they contained their judgment. You remember that, Okay. Last week, I showed you that good examples of friendship are that we listen well, we respond well after we've listened well, but we always point to Christ. And those friends weren't doing that necessarily. But today, it's Elihu. And I want to give you, in summary of these several chapters, three ideas. Number one, we see the maturity of, of Elihu, okay? And I hope you're taking notes, and if the kids have the listening page, they can see this too. The maturity. I hope you have some mature friends. I hope to your friends, you are that mature friend. There is some maturity about you, and this is what you recognize immediately as we get into these chapters, that this guy is, this guy is different. And I want to show you why we recognize the maturity of Elihu. Number one, we see that he has respect, we see the respect that he has. This teaches us that Job had three other friends that traveled from afar and they stayed there seven days, seven nights, didn't say a word, sat with him. And then finally, once Job started to speak, the friends started to speak. And we've got three cycles. So there's a lot of back and forth and conversation here. And this guy, Lee, who is not even in the picture. Well, it tells us why. With respect, look at verse four of chapter 32. Now Elihu had, look at this, had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. We see respect here. He waited for them to go first. They were older than him. So, a beautiful characteristic of many cultures in the world. I don't know if what you think if we have this in our culture, but age matters. He let the older people go first. He let those with experience go first. He waited for them to say all that they needed to say. And this is important to recognize that he was respectful toward them. It's a lesson that we all need to be learning, that the younger people have something to learn from the older people. When we do a new members class here and anybody that's interested in our church goes through it, I make a point for us to point out that it is the strength of the church when we have all generations. 
When there are younger people here and middle-aged people here and older people here and people of all walks of life, new believers and people who've been believers for a long time, there is strength in that. We're not aiming at any particular category at all. Diversity is a strength and diversity of age and experience is a strength as well. And so we will often say here that older people or younger people need to recognize and respect and honor and serve older people. But we also understand that younger people are the future and they must be invested in, discipled and mentored. And so I tell the older people often that they need to prioritize and invest in and love and pray for and help the younger generations. We see respect here with Elihu understanding a lot of this. John Calvin writes, when God lets a man live a long time in the world, he gives him grace to be able to profit those who are younger. Don't we know that to be true? If you've been around the block, then you can give some insight to those who've never been around the block, right? It's the way life works. And Elihu seems to understand this. We see his maturity with the respect. But we also know that age alone does not make you wise. While respect is a good thing, age alone does not make you wise. Wisdom comes from submitting to God. And I know plenty of older, more experienced people who still will not submit to God. So the second thing we recognize about Elihu's maturity is his wisdom. He does not think that their age alone has made them wise. Only God does that. Look at chapter 32, verse six. Look what he says. And Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzai, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. So there's the respect part, but look at this. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So while he is respectful, and he lets the older people go first, and he holds back all that he has to say, and he listened first before he responded. That was the point from last week. He listened first before he responded. But now that they are finished, and remember it was several chapters, now that they are finished, we see this wisdom coming out of Elihu that he's now ready to speak. He has his observation. He knows what he thinks about God. He thinks he can be helpful to Job, and so here it comes. We see wisdom there. We are to recognize that there is certainly maturity and respect and there can be wisdom through experience and through age and through many years. But we are to also recognize that the Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You show me a 12-year-old that fears the Lord against an 80-year-old who does not, and there may be more wisdom as to the meaning of life in a 12-year-old than there would be in an 80-year-old. It is absolutely possible that an adult with many years of experience may know more common sense about the way life works or uh, handling a budget or changing a tire or something like that. But none of those things get you to heaven. 
None of those things in and of themselves are glory of God and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. None of those things understand that he died to forgive us of our sins. There is wisdom in knowing that all of life is about Jesus Christ. We recognize the wisdom of Elihu by him now saying, I'm ready to speak. But there's a third thing that helps us see the maturity of Elihu, and that is that he did listen well. He listened so well so that he could respond well. He knew what they said. Look at chapter 32, verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. We see, even though he was younger than them, that he was mature and that he was a good listener. So Elihu has now been introduced, been introduced to us here. He hasn't really said anything yet. One of the things that you'll also recognize about Elihu, but we'll talk about later, is that he seems to be a little cocky. He seems to be uh, overzealous, and that's, that's all right right now. He hasn't even really said anything yet, but we see some maturity here. He's ready to go. He's listened. He let the older people go first. He's waited in line. He's modeled some patience. But let me remind you that all of this is about friends trying to comfort Job. And so it begs the question, what really comforts? When you want to really get into maturity, may it not be that you are good at paying your bills or you don't oversleep, but may maturity be found at the, to the degree that you place God first in your life with your eyes on Christ as the one who leads us. We see some glimpses here of the maturity of Elihu. Number one, his maturity, but number two, the next thing we recognize about Elihu is his passion. He is passionate. Look back to chapter 32, verse two. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzai of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. You cannot read about Elihu and not pick up that right there four times it uses the word burning with anger. This man, this younger friend, had a passion about him because they were justifying Job rather than God. Specifically, that Job was justifying himself rather than God. I was tempted to derail the whole sermon today on Elihu just to give you a strong sermon on don't you ever ever try to make yourself look better than God. Don't you ever elevate yourself and how right you are and how opinionated you can be and how good you are over God. There is only one person ever who is altogether good and holy, complete, and never wrong, and that is God who made you and loved you. There may be many things in this life that we do not understand, but what we understand, even when we don't understand, it is that God is God and that we are not. Do you understand? 
This is the danger here. And this is where Job is kind of going, although Job is a peculiar study because, remember, nobody in the book of Job knows what we know about the book of Job. This whole story is being played out of God proving his point to Satan. Satan is doing all of this stuff to Job, making him suffer, and God is letting Satan do that so God can show that he's a big, strong God who keeps his people. God loves Job, and God's not gonna let Satan do anything that will hurt Job's soul or even hurt his life. He's not gonna let him die. God has Job right where he wants him. But Job doesn't know this. His friends don't know this. Nobody knows this. Only the reader knows this. And this is why this book is so good for us. Elihu, the new friend, doesn't know this either. And not only do they not know that, they don't know what Satan's doing either. They don't even know of Satan. None of them ever even mention Satan. Satan's not mentioned anywhere in the book after chapter two. So it raises the question of how strong is your faith in God How big is your view and understanding of God? Do not doubt him. Do not question him. This is what causes for the passion of Elihu, the burning with anger. God has not done anything wrong. And when we are suffering and going through difficulty, we have to be careful to make sure that we don't start saying this is God's fault in a way of accusing him of wrong. Now, I know in my life, and I don't know how you are in your life, but with selfishness that we all struggle with, we all can be rather quick to blame other people. Why is this happening? Well, it's their fault or their fault or their fault. Whose fault is this? It can't be my fault, and we love to push blame. We see that so well in the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, right? Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the devil, right? That whole thing. We love to push blame. So Job, who is by all accounts a good and righteous, God-loving man, has now seen his whole life fall apart. And the question is, why is this happening? Is it anybody's fault? And the answer is, it's not anybody's fault if you mean that something's been done wrong. It's God's fault he's letting it happen, but God's not doing anything wrong. God is allowed to let you and I suffer. He is. And God wants us to know that he loves us when he lets us suffer. And God wants you to know that he loves you in your suffering and he will not let you suffer forever. God will not let you suffer forever. He will end your suffering. Heaven is eternal And you will be in eternity without suffering through Christ. God will remove your suffering at some point. And while that is hard at times to grasp, let me remind you that God also sent his son to suffer in your place. The one who was not guilty but is innocent. These are the ideas that bring Elihu now to his passion, to his burning. In many ways, this is what we see as the whole theme and problem of the book of Job. Trusting in God's sovereignty and goodness through suffering and then realizing that God has not done anything wrong. And this is what the third point is gonna be about today, but we're not there yet. 
Elihu now burns with passion, burns with anger. And so from that, we see him saying, I have to speak. I have to say something. Look with me at chapter 32, verse 17. 32, 17, I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Job, listen up, man, I got something to say. I've been listening here long enough. I've been sitting here quietly long enough, but I'm about to explode on the inside. I got to tell you what I think. I've got to defend God in some ways. I can't sit here and allow 30 chapters to go on of you and your friends talking about what's going on and become and, and, and come to the conclusion that maybe God has made a mistake. Elihu says, I'm not gonna let that happen. I've got to say something. Mason writes, Elihu is angry with Job, because the only way he could find to justify himself was by accusing God. And he is angry with Job's friends because the only way they could find to justify God was by accusing Job. Job wants to say this is God's fault and Job's friends want to say this is Job's fault. None of them really understand what's going on. He wants to talk about God, he wants to defend God, but perhaps he doesn't understand it all. He is passionate. We love passion, don't we? We do. We love it when somebody can get fired up or show some conviction or raise their voice or stand up and clap and cheer, right? We love it when a ball game gets us on our feet. We love a standing ovation. We love it when somebody rises to the occasion or rises to the challenge. Passion is a good thing. But we must admit that sometimes we are passionate at the wrong times or in the wrong directions. And may you and I be able to discern good passion from bad passion. May we be able to recognize you shouldn't be passionate about that. There's a lot of things being celebrated these days that should not be celebrated. And we appreciate anybody's effort and we appreciate people working hard together and we appreciate, we appreciate people who work for a goal and are trying to make a difference. But if you're trying to make a difference in an area that we shouldn't be making a difference, then we should not like that passion. Yes, passion can be admired, but let's be passionate about the right things. Elihu here is not that far off. He's trying to defend God. But I don't think he has a full enough understanding of God and suffering mixed together. And I want to be crystal clear. Maybe you don't either. If you've not sought the Lord in suffering, if you've not looked to his word for answers to the challenging questions, then perhaps you don't have answers either to God and suffering. Can God be good and let bad things happen to us? Can God be savior and let us suffer? Can God be altogether holy and good and right and true and allow evil? Does it make sense that God has Satan on a leash and he's just walking around letting Satan do a little bit here and he lets Satan go after this person, he pulls it back and he lets Satan go here and he pulls it back because that's what the Bible describes that God is happening. The beautiful thing about that is that God holds the leash and Satan doesn't go one inch further than God allows the leash to go and at any moment he yanks the leash all the way back and at the end he destroys Satan. 
knowing that he's already destroyed him on the cross because Jesus died to defeat the devil. So we have to be able to think through God and suffering with the truth that the Bible tells us. And wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. You don't walk out in this world and live a respectful, wise, godly life without his word. You don't do that. You don't live a life that tries to make sense of all of the adversity in this life without God and his church and his people and his truth with our eyes on Christ. You don't. And so while we do admire passion, let's make sure our passion is informed by truth. If you want to be a good friend, if you want to be a mature believer, if you want to truly help your friends, grow in the truth and let the truth fuel your passion. A passionate friend without truth ends up not being a very helpful friend. What we should really fear in life is being a friend that's not helping our friends know Jesus. Elihu is here and he's passionate and he's got a lot to say. All of this is just him getting ready to say what he's about to say. And for chapter after chapter after chapter, he just goes on. Number one, we see his maturity. Number two, we see his passion. And then lastly, we see his error, the error of Elihu. I mentioned in that last point that he burned with anger because he justified himself rather than God. But let us remind ourselves yet again that we know that God has not done anything wrong. We are to trust in the sovereignty of God we are to trust in the goodness of God through suffering. We are to always know that God is Lord, God is good, God is holy, and he cannot lie, and he cannot make a mistake. God does not do anything wrong. And this is what Elihu struggles with. Anderson writes, no one can yet see a solution in which both Job and God are shown to be in the right. Nobody's even considered that. Nobody's even considered after 30-some chapters that God hadn't done anything wrong and Job hadn't done anything wrong. This is just the way his, the way his life has fallen. If you don't have that category in your life, you're probably struggling right now mentally. I want to open your mind up today to believe that whatever is happening to you, it may not be happening to you because you caused it. It may be happening to you just because God wants to let that happen to you. And at times it sounds like that's not fair, but nobody's ever supposed to ask the creator, is that fair? Surely you've lived long enough to know right now, life is not fair. God judges fairness, not us. Now, where Job goes a little bit wrong is the way he tries to think through this. But in the first two chapters, the Bible makes crystal clear, Job has not done anything wrong. He has not done this to bring this upon himself. So you're wrong if you think, well, that's what he gets. That's the way his parents raised him, or that's what he gets. 
He's been making mad decisions. He's been hanging around with the wrong people. And we think that those answers are the answers to everything in life. And that's just not true. Not every poor person in the world is poor because of their bad decisions. And if you don't have that category in your life, wake up. Start reading the Bible. Job is a poor, suffering, miserable dude sitting outside of town. And all the people that are new to town are just shaking their head at him, thinking that, oh, he must have been raised wrong. He must have dropped out of school. He must have not shown up for work today. He's a bum. In reality, Job is the most impressive, God-fearing man the Bible's ever seen. He's a hero to the New Testament. He's a hero to the prophets. Job is God's best guy, God says, in the beginning of Job. So we have to be very careful in thinking that this is just everything is just the result of what he's done. That's not true. God is doing what he wants to do because God wants to show Satan, Satan has no power over God. And the reason why God is doing that is so it could be recorded in his holy word for us, for the history of the world, so that we would believe in a good God, a father in heaven during suffering. Now we all know, absolutely, if you make bad decisions and you do dumb, foolish things, it will go worse for you, often. And there are many stories and situations like that. If you had not done that, you wouldn't be in this position, right? And every parent knows that. Every parent has to say that to their kids at times. That is true, but it's not always the case. And you better not get caught saying that about Job. So what is going on here? God doing what God does to get glory through Job, to teach the church how to suffer well, to never let go of the rope, to never lose your faith, to always submit yourself in humility to a good God. That's what he's teaching us. Elihu is in error with this. So let me show you a few things. Chapter 33, he goes at Job, okay? Chapter 33, he goes at Job. He's saying, Job, you're prideful. You're not even considering some of these things about God. You're thinking less about God now and thinking more about yourself. Your focus is on you. Chapter 34, he comes back and starts defending God. It says here that he asserts God's justice. He wants to defend God. God is not wrong. Chapter 35, he goes back to telling Job that he's wrong. And then you get to chapters 36 and 37. And it becomes fantastic. It looks like a guy who knows a lot about God. It looks like Elihu has understanding and faith in the big, true, one sovereign God. It's awesome. If you know anything about the ending of Job, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, these chapters, you know that God never tells Job why this has happened, but God comes back with all of these questions that just show Job how big he is. He just puts into perspective Job's small life and his small suffering with God's huge goodness and power and strength and sovereignty. And that alone causes Job to repent. The grandeur, the majesty, the power of God in Job's sight, causes Job to repent. And these last two chapters of Elihu speaking sound like that. It's almost like it's getting the reader ready. It's getting Job ready for what God is about to say. But let me show you a few things. Look at chapter 36, verse 15. 
This is a great truth. If you like Proverbs, if you underline in your Bible, here's one you don't want to miss. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Had God not put us through this struggle, this season, this adversity, I would not have listened. I would not have turned to him. Had God not brought me through this hard time, I would not have been looking or listening to him. May you believe that God absolutely uses trials and hardship and suffering adversity to get your attention. Elihu knows this. Turn over to chapter 37. Look at verse five. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. On the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Wow. Hear this, Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Does everybody see that in verse 14? Listen to me, Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Jump down to verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Now we see the error of Elihu. He has faith. He knows God. He believes in God. He knows how big and strong God is. He knows that we should never be prideful before God. He knows that it is the answer to life to submit yourself, therefore, to God. He knows this. But he doesn't know enough about the fatherhood of God to comfort the suffering, to comfort his dear friend, Job. Mason writes, Elihu's anger, like Job's own anger, is an expression of what it feels like to grapple with such deep mysteries without having any knowledge of the one key factor, the cross of Christ. To try to plumb apart from the cross the dual enigma of man's suffering and of God's love is like trying to take hold of the east wind in one hand and the west wind in the other and hold the two together. Listen, folks, you can't comfort the suffering. You can't comfort the sinful you can't comfort the wayward, the rebellious, the broken down, the convicted. You cannot without telling them about God and what God has done in Christ. 
Talking about God, conversations about God, only mentioning God is not enough for us to truly know the heart of God. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There are many things in life where we will never get answers on this side of heaven. But we are to know that all suffering, all evil, all ugliness, all sinfulness has been dealt with by God in his son, Christ. As Jesus Christ hung on the cross, holy and sinless and righteous and perfect, he hangs there on the cross, not able to die. He could have never died holy and righteous. It's impossible for God to die, for the wages of sin is death. But as Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says it was the will of God to crush him. And while he hung on the cross, God took the sins of the whole world and put them on Jesus. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says God made him who knew no sin to become our sin. So then God killed him. And God killed him because God the Father has so much love for us that in punishing sin in his son, he would not punish sin in us for those who believe. This is the only comfort to the suffering and the sinner. This is the ultimate comfort. That the good God that allows us to suffer also allowed his son to suffer for us. In all of our suffering, in all of our sinfulness, in all of our hurting, in all of our conviction, in all of our bad experiences in life, we are to know and hear and see and believe that God loves us by sending Jesus to die for us. May that comfort you. We wish that Job's friends would have spoken more about redemption, forgiveness, hope, salvation. And while they did a good job at times, especially Elihu, of speaking about God and his power and strength and majesty and how he should not be questioned, we see error in his friendship for not pointing his dear friend who's suffering to the comfort that comes from God alone. If your soul is here today lacking comfort, if your life is here today lacking comfort, may you run to Christ. May you turn to him. May you bow your knee or su submit your heart. May you believe in Jesus. Abraham Kuyper says, he is your friend who pushes you nearer to God. He is your friend who pushes you nearer to God. Several years ago, we had a, a man in our church that was passing away. And it was a long process, and I had visited him many, many, many times. He's a big Kentucky Wildcats basketball fan. He actually passed away in the winter during basketball season. 
And every time I'd go over there, he'd have a ball game on and we'd talk about ball games and all that. And it was just kind of a, uh, an icebreaker, a segue to get into deeper conversations. But this man died as he was on hospice and it was a long process, several, several weeks to get there. And I remember it was in December and they had told us he had maybe two weeks to live. And I remember thinking like, he's just got days left. But he was all there. I mean, we could still talk. He could tell me about what was going on and all that. And I remember walking into the house that day and I was about to say what I had said every other time. Did you get to watch the cats today? But I had just been told he only had a few days left. And before I'd gotten to his room, I just kind of felt the Lord saying, you really gonna talk about that again? You really gonna bring that up? He's days away from never thinking about the cats ever again. He is days away from never caring about those types of things ever again. He is days away from seeing face to face the one who loved him and suffered for him and died for him. Won't you talk about that? May we be those types of friends to those in our household, those outside of our household. May we be real friends that are mature, that are passionate, that point people to what really matters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us that focus. Give us that love and devotion and friendship toward others. Father, thank you for Christ, the one who suffered for us, the answer to this life. Father, thank you that we get to read Job from a perspective that Job and his friends did not know. God, thank you that it's so helpful for us in our suffering. God, work in our hearts now, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.